I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We pray that He will be with us tonight. I'm your host, and uh, those of you who ordered at Christmas time the package, the special deal package, uh, Derek tells me there was 50 to 100 of you who ordered the package, and uh, there is the promise of a book coming out in spring of this year. Well, July's sort of springish, isn't he? <laughs> isn't it? Um, and I just want you to know uh, that there is one forthcoming soon, and I've been talking with Seth about it. We're thinking of a, a different delivery system rather than the uh, paper print, but maybe to get it out to you in another way. Seth has put other books at uh, hotm.tv online, things like that. So we're gonna work on that. Uh, we actually have an email, uh, someone asking what's the topic. We have a series called the Campus Series, and I'm wor I work on all six at the same time, and a couple of them are getting close to being finished. They're more uh, just really kind of conceptual books, short like If Then. And uh, so just to let you know, we haven't forgotten you, Bear. Uh, be patient with me, and uh, you should be seeing it in the next few months. Uh, speaking of books, I highly recommend If Then, If My Kingdom Were of This World and My Servants Would Fight, especially to people who are sick to death of American evangelical community taking Jesus and his good news and tying it to political issues, political agendas, social evil, everything else, using Jesus, running the American Jesus up the flagpole, using his name to win their arguments and to bolster support. I wish we could get this book in the hands of every college student at least, uh, maybe someday. Go to www.hotm.tv, click on the store. You can find If Then, it's a black and white book. I think the picture of a world on the cover of it. You can get it there, order it from us. And with that, how about a moment from Zawad? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw. And behold, a white horse. So last week we started going through a book of the Bible in the from the word section. And all I'm doing is pulling out the subjective Christianity passages, passages that support the idea that it's between you and God and don't be judging people and let's just get along and love each other. Um, some people have criticized this and say it's not uh, uh, viable. Uh, I want to define subjective Christianity as an approach to faith in Jesus Christ 
that refuses to divide over doctrine or dogma or practice by accepting all professions of faith and allowing all people the right to openly pursue him according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That has to be, because otherwise we're going to be policing each other from here to eternity. So where I, for instance, l let me put it to you this way. I reject, for example, eternal punishment. I reject the teachings of Darby and Schofield of futurism. I don't believe in that line, sola scriptura. I don't agree with the Trinity concept, creedal Trinitarianism or Calvinism. Uh, but as a subjective Christian, I embrace anybody who, who follows and adheres and, and believes in the Trinity and eternal punishment and that Jesus is coming any moment to destroy us and, and all those other things. Absolutely, my brother and sister. So that's, that's the idea I'm trying to say. Just because I differ with you, don't deem me evil and cast me out of the brotherhood. There's things that we just don't know. So I hope that makes sense. So let me, we're in 1 Corinthians now, and let me just hit on those passages that I think support uh, subjective Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you. Now that sounds kind of contradictory but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. We know that's not possible when it comes to doctrine, so it has to be possible in terms of love and faith. Then, to verse 11, it says, For he, it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. He asks the question rhetorically, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What was happening is they were breaking up into divisions. We're going to follow Cephas. We're going to follow Paul. We're going to follow Christ. And Paul's just like, what are you doing? We're all on the same team. 1 Corinthians 2.1 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Listen to this. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. If that's all we, Paul says he knows, Jesus Christ and him crucified, are we big enough in the faith to accept people who say, I believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified? Are we big enough in our faith to say, we're going to let God work that out? You make that profession, you're my brother. Or do we have to start going down the list to make sure everyone qualifies that they believe and see and think like we do? What is a sign of milk drinkers in Scripture? 1 Corinthians tells us, um, 3.1, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither now are you able. He says, For yet you are carnal. For whereas there is among you, this is why they are carnal. This is why they are milk drinkers. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Do you see how Paul explains who is carnal and who is a milk drinker and who is a babe in Christ? People who are dividing and envying and having strife and bickering over this and that. He says, you're just milk drinkers. You're just babies. Look, watch babies in a, in a room full of toys. They're, they're horrific. You know, it's a brawl. If they knew how to brawl, they would do it. 
They're just babes out there for themselves. And that's the same thing within the body. If we're a bunch of babies in Christ, let's pick on each other for the different things, or let's just get along and say, all right, let's leave it in God's hands. 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you're standing on that foundation, I accept you. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he that is wise, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Don't glory in men and their philosophies. Don't glory in Sean McCraney and his wild ideas. Don't glory in subjective Christianity. Glory in Christ. Glory in, in the liberty that we have in Christ. I'm just preaching this approach, nothing more. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, Paul says. That is such a great passage. How about 1 Corinthians 4, 5? Therefore judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord comes, he says, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have the praise of God. God, he, Paul, Paul says there, judge nothing before the time. Don't decide if somebody is a heretic. Don't decide if somebody is going to hell. Don't decide if somebody is a, 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 a babe or a mature or this or that. Let God, it says God's the judge here. Do no judging before the time. And what's the time? He says, when the Lord comes. So he was speaking of, and so for us, the time is when we die. When we go to the Lord, judge nothing before that time. Paul touched on the fact that everyone tends to think that they're instructors in Christ. He says this, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And what he's saying there is, listen, I've been called as a special witness as an apostle. You got 10,000 people who are telling you how to do it. Whatever. You're always going to have that. But look to what me as an apostle, he's really saying what I've been called to do. For you doctrinalists out there, Paul plainly said, 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not in word. You ever hear that one? Not in word, but in power. That's what it says. Okay. So it's not that we don't love the word, but the kingdom of God is not in, in ink. It's in power. It's in the Holy Spirit, the power to love, to overcome ourselves. And 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things, all things, all things are lawful unto me, Paul says. All things, but all things are not expedient. They're not the best things. All things are lawful to me, he repeats. When scripture repeats something, that's a point to make. All things are lawful to me. But I will not be brought under the power of any. I love that. I, I allow myself a great deal of liberty in Christ. But man, if something starts stealing my freedom, phenopole, it can go bite the wall. 1 Corinthians 6:17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Joined unto the Lord, you're over at that denomination, this denomination, this cult, that cult, this group, that group. If you are of the Spirit of Christ, you are one spirit. That's what it says. Uh, and so therefore, love would reign strongly between us. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. And if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. 
Someone who loves God. Another thing, listen to the wisdom of Paul, the doctrinalists out there. Ready? For though I be free from all men, Paul says, yet I have made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Listen to this. For those people who say, don't associate with people who are non-Christians. Don't associate with the homosexuals. Don't associate with these people. Don't associate with that. Listen to what Paul says. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without the law, not without the law to God, but, the law to, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That is a great passage. We're not saved by our own righteousness. You think you're going to you stand better in the sight of God because you don't rub shoulders with somebody who you believe is beneath you? Paul says, I hang out with them. To those who are lowly, I go and I become lowly so that we can talk. This is what it's about. That's not phony to me. That is being who you are with people. When you talk to a child, what do you do? Talk to them in, in Elizabethan English and point down and you get down close and talk to them eye to eye. Do you relate to them on where they're at? God does that with us. Then there's chapter 13, 1 Corinthians. How do you get around it? And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains and have not love, I have nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love is everything. Can't have divisions and have this biting if, there's, uh, if love is present, in my opinion. And then what about verse 7? Listen to this closely. We, just, we read it, and we don't really think about it. Love bears all things. Love bears people who say they question the Trinity. Love bears all things. It bears the LDS. Love bears the Catholic Pope. Love bears the homosexual. It bears all things, he says. We bear very little as Christians today. Love believes all things. That's such a great line. We don't believe anything unless agreed upon by a, a group and a bunch of men in robes and whatever. Yeah, does, this, does the council agree with this? Then it will be done. We all agree. Now what's, but where are the people who stand up in all the parks and towns and cities? There are no statues of committees. Where are the people who stand up and say, Phenopole to the group, to the group think. I think this. You know, we believe all things. Paul says we hope all things. We hope all things. I tell people I don't believe in eternal punishment. Do you think you're wrong? I could be wrong, but I hope not. I hope that God puts people who have been bad on this earth into his presence eventually. I, you hope that? Yes, I hope all things. And yet you're considered bad if you hope all things. If you believe all things. That's a beautiful thing about Christianity. We have that liberty to believe and hope all things. It's a funny one to me. And then he says we endure all things. That includes each other. How about 1 Corinthians 14, 33? Two more. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints. He wants peace, not confusion. And what is the strength of sin? Finally, the last one, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. 
The sting of death is sin. Listen. And the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Got that? You come up with a law. You have to believe this. That's a law, by the way. You have to believe that. That is where the strength of sin lies. You see that? But if you come to people and say, I, I believe this, and they say, well, I believe that, and you say, all right, you know, let's see how God works this out between us, and we grow, and let's, let's look at the scripture together, whatever, it's okay. Well, I really believe it. That's okay, you're my brother. There's no strength of sin in that, because there's no law. But we insist on making the rules which give us the right to then criticize and judge other people. That is where sin lies. The strength of sin is in the law. Next week, 2 Corinthians, and more passages from there that support the idea of subjective Christianity. The Spirit gives life, folks, but the letter kills. With that, how about a word of prayer? Father, we seek you in spirit and truth. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the gospel, for the Holy Spirit to guide us. We pray that we will be better Christians, full of your spirit, and seek you. We pray for those who are struggling, and we pray for our staff who volunteers every week, selflessly, behind the scenes, never seen, uh, never mentioned really, and yet they do everything. We, we're, we're grateful, Lord, for life, and we pray that we will be able to understand you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to wrap up Sola Scriptura in two more, th today and next week, and that's it. The idea of Sola Scriptura, you hang with me tonight. It's going to give you some good stuff, I think, is in the title alone, Scripture Alone. Our view is that Scripture, my view is that Scripture alone leads to plenty of division, as evidenced by the 30,000-plus denominations out in the world today. 30,000 denominations. As a quick review, let me put it to you in this order. When Jesus sent the apostles out, he did not tell them to write. He said, go and preach. Preach. That's what he told them to do. Many years later, many years later, these men were led to write by the Holy Spirit. Gospels and epistles and letters to other people. These written epistles were sent out to specific places to Corinth and to Ephesus and to Thessalonica, letters to those specific churches telling them what the apostles thought they needed to know. In an age where paper, vellum, papyrus was very costly and everything had to be hand copied in transmission, it was time consuming. The apostolic communications helped lead the early church uh, but they were no means unified or agreed upon, nor were they ubiquitously copied or shared with each other. In other words, every believer did not have all the copies, and what was valid was not completely established for hundreds of years. Even a hundred years they weren't established. A hundred years they weren't established. More like two or three hundred years they weren't kind of firmly established. 300, you know what, you know what 300 years ago was today to us? What was it, 1715? 1815, 1915? 300 years ago was the year 1715. That's how long they went from 1715 till today before they agreed upon what the contents were. That is a, I mean, don't just think, oh, well, 300 years isn't bad. It's a long time. Okay? Additionally, there are plenty of pseudo-accounts. 
we've talked about that crop up. We had tons of different gospels and writers from all over this vast 3,000 mile area who were writing things in the name of apostles all over the place. They had to sort through that. And the presence of those things muddied doctrine. So they weren't really sure what was true and what was not from the apostles' hands. Really, the only scripture was the Old Testament. That was true scripture, canonized prior to, uh, I mean, accepted prior to Christ ascending. The genuine articles certainly were a blessing to believers. And they were shared and they were copied, admittedly. So much so that they were translated into a lot of different languages by 300 AD, admittedly. Unfortunately, by 400 AD, all the translations were boiled down to one accepted copy by the church, quote unquote, Latin. And for 1,000 years, that Latin Vulgate Bible reigned on this earth. A thousand, Christianity isn't even 2,000 years old. For more than half of it, that Latin Vulgate reigned. <coughs> it wasn't until Wycliffe and Erasmus, the printing press, Luther, Tyndale, that the common believer started to get the Bible in his hands, and that's the, that's the mid-1500s, okay? My point, to claim sola scriptura for the body of Christ in the mid-1500s, like the Reformationists did, sola scriptura is what it is, is like an automobile group getting up today and saying the automobile is the only mode of transportation in the world. And it's the only mode of transportation that has ever mattered. We know that we didn't have the automobile a couple hundred years ago. And we know that we had horse-drawn carriages and skateboards and bicycles and, all, and trains and planes and, and everything else besides automobiles. But to say sola scriptura, this is it, at that point in time is a ridiculous claim, is my point. My stance against sola scriptura is not against the scripture, ever. It's against man's use and interpretation and boxed up views of the scripture an approach that did not lead to unity. Sola Scriptura did not lead to what the Bible says we should be. It led to the opposite. It led to utter division. Okay? Last week we summarized the amazing work of Erasmus, who showed how utterly messed up the Latin Vulgate was by the time he and his contemporaries got a hold of it and started to look at it and translate it. How could anyone claim sola scriptura was the way God worked when for a thousand years plus most of what was known as scripture was either unavailable, out of reach due to expense, couldn't be read, or was corrupted when it was read? How? We also talked about how Erasmus views as a preeminent scholar of his day, how his views on things like church and tradition and free will were utterly in conflict with Martin Luther and the father of the Reformation. How Erasmus was a much better scholar than Luther. Luther was a much better reformer and those two could not agree. Sola Scriptura between two men could not break their divisions. And it ended with Luther calling him a viper and a child of hell. That's what it ended with, like it does today. Heretic, same thing. Sola Scriptura did not solve their differences. Did Sola Scriptura uh, solve the differences between Calvin and Michael Servetus? No, 
No, it's just that Calvin had more political pull and Michael Servetus was put to death. That's how you won back then. Sola Scriptura has never solved any of these nascent or long-standing divisions because it can't. That's what I'm trying to get through. That cannot solve the quandary of 30, 35,000 denominations in this world and all these roads that are claiming to lead to heaven. And Christians, we delude ourselves by walking about and say, well, we really do agree on the same things. No, we don't. We do not agree on the same things. In fact, we've, we've had shows where we just talked about one simple thing, baptism. And there are hundreds of different views on just baptism, with many of them believing it's necessary to go to God. It has become, I mean, why hasn't anyone said we've approached it the wrong way? This is my overabiding point. Human beings have different views. So sola scriptura appeals to a methodology that is absolutely untenable. And because it's untenable, we fight thinking it's right. Listen, it sounds really viable. It sounds like the concept presents us with a manual that is so easy to understand. And we all have it and we can read it. And it's, it's written down. It's the manual. It's so easy. So it sounds like it should. But I mean, look at those two. Erasmus and Luther couldn't even get along. And they were experts in the word and disagreed. I made mention of a man named Wycliffe a few weeks ago and his translation of the Bible from the Vulgate. This was in the 1300s, so I'm stepping back a little bit from the 15, mid-15s, and I'm stepping back just to the 1300s for a minute. I want to just talk quickly about Wycliffe. Wycliffe primed the pump for the Reformation that Erasmus and Luther and Tyndale and, and all the rest jumped in on. Wycliffe's point was how... The Reformation, really the point of the Reformation to me is how God got the Bible into the hands of individuals. That is really the point of the Reformation. The Reformation was not about keeping the Bible in the control of religious leaders. That was already been done for a thousand years. They had control of it. The, the Reformation was about the scripture getting out of the hands of the controlling leaders and into the hands of the individual. Remember that. This fact in and of itself should serve to show that pastoral input, denominational demands, and pastoral control over flocks should not be. It never should be. Pastors are to feed the flocks the Word of God. That is what Scripture says. When they step in and start doing other things, that, be, that erases the whole purpose of the Bible going from the church's hands into the individual. The Bible needs to be in the individual's hands and the Bible needs to be interpreted and understood by that individual, by the Holy Spirit, which brings us all as one. The masses have the word, let them interpret it by the Spirit and let's get along. You see, it was the Catholic Church's fear, this was their fear, that the masses would gain access to the manual and then the church would lose its authority and they wouldn't be able to control people anymore and their money and their land and their sin and their indulgences and their ability to pay off their sin. So when it came to those who seeks, people who sought God in spirit and in truth, the Catholics were right. When they got a hold of that Bible, they said bye-bye fathead to the Catholic Church. But guess what the Catholic Church probably didn't understand is that 
most human beings want to be in the control of someone else, especially when it comes to religion. They want to be told what to think, what to say, how to pay, how to pray. All of that is very convenient to most individuals because we don't want to think and we want to believe that someone else can tell us. And then we put our responsibility on them, the pastor, the clergy, the boards, the directors. We can point to them and say, you taught that. Okay, okay, pay, gum, show up. Okay, I'm good with God. Bull. Seekers of truth know that. And so, but the Catholic Church probably didn't realize that they're going to retain. Look, the Catholic Church is huge still. The Protestant Reformation didn't drive everybody away. It drove out a certain kind, but that certain kind has still embraced religion. So listen, getting back to Wycliffe, he's known as the morning star of the Reformation, a precursor to Erasmus and Luther. He was born in 1331. He was an Oxford trained professor, English. Uh, he was a man of great influence and that's why they couldn't stop him from being a rebel. Prior to the Catholic Church putting him uh, uh, or allowing they didn't put him to death. That was, I said that before, that's wrong. He was a brave dissident against the Catholic Church and its ways. And there were three points that Wycliffe had. This was in 1300s, Wycliffe taught this. Ready? Point number one. He said that an individual's interpretation of the Bible was the best guide to a moral life rather than the church providing things like the sacraments to give salvation. That's his first point. This, this is all I'm suggesting relative to the Bible, that we as individuals can, will, and have interpreted the Bible differently from each other and from our pastors, and that it's okay. God is working in all of us as babes, as young men, as, as, as mature in Christ. He works with all of us. It's okay. God can do it. He can control it. So we abide in love and let the doctor uh, divisions die. Secondly, Wycliffe insisted that an individual's life in God was of far more value than an official office in a church. In other words, a devout individual was morally superior to a wicked, ordained cleric. That is what uh, Wycliffe said. Look at, I, you show me a peasant who loves the word and is seeking God, and I'll show you somebody who is far more morally superior, if we're going to make those calls, than a Catholic cleric. And this we see that Wycliffe challenged the privileged status of the clergy, which was central to their power in England and around the world. And again, I'm promoting the same thing. The church, its leaders, its popes and priests and reverends and pastors have absolutely no better insight to the Word of God and how to think about God than a woman in her tenement apartment on State Street and 3rd who reads the word and has the same Holy Spirit. Not one bit. There's no, no, no difference. Pastors, again, are called to teach. We teach. We're wrong. We try. But we got to cut out the institutions, the demands for tithes. I was told that there's a church in this state that last Sunday they spent the entire meeting talking about tithes. That's a burden. That is not liberty in Christ. That is a heinous crime. I'm sorry. Now you could say, well, that's not very subjective. That's my opinion. I'll teach what I want. Do I love that church? Yes. Do I accept the pastor as my brother? Absolutely. Will I point who that pastor is out publicly? No. But I'm just telling you, we can teach differently, but we have to accept. <sighs> the third area Wycliffe, all the way back to the 1300s, for goodness sake, attacked, was he thought the Bible ought to be translated into the common language of the people. And so 
he was so committed to this ideal that he completed the task. Now he had to take the Latin Vulgate, that's all he had, and it was corrupt. And he provided a translation in English, first one, 1300s of the Bible, well before the printing press, well before Erasmus or Luther. Not easy. He wrote it in vernacular English. Uh, if you try to read one, I think we have one around here. It's very tough, but it was an attempt. And boy, did he pay. Uh, the Catholic Church went ballistic and uh, Wycliffe suffered a stroke and he died in 1384. An anti-Wycliffe statue in 1401 was extended to all of his followers. A paper called the Constitutions of Oxford in 1408 claimed all authority back. It made it a crime of heresy for any unlicensed, gotta be licensed now, 1300s, laity to translate scripture and uh, which uh, a charge of heresy could mean death. The Council of Constance declared Wycliffe a heretic on May 4th, 1415, banned all of his early, early writings. Of all the reformers who preceded Martin Luther, Wycliffe put the most emphasis on scripture in the hands of the individual. To end religious luxury, and he said we need a revolution against the visible church. Wycliffe was huge on the idea that the kingdom of God was made of believers who are invisible members of this kingdom by their spirit and their heart, not the physical church, he said. Forget it. He had something going on there. Uh, Wycliffe said, even though there were a hundred popes and though every mendicant monk were a cardinal, they would be entitled to confidence only insofar as they accorded with the Bible. Now that does smack of, I get the idea of sola scriptura in quotes like that. Nearly 150 years later, when Luther would pick up on what Wycliffe started, unfortunately, like Erasmus pointed out, Luther believed that his interpretations of the Bible were what needed to be embraced. Again, 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 men, and the churches that assumed their names allowed themselves to slip in, playing a role of authority, whether it be authority to govern others or to make demands on others or interpret scripture for others. Men st sticking themselves in there and saying, this is how you have to think in order to be right, in order to be right with God, in order to die and go to heaven. Because if you don't, you'll go to hell. And all we have is more religion. And not just one, not just Luther, 35,000 today. So let me wrap up our topic, Sola Scriptura, with an addendum. Uh, it's a historical addendum. You know what? I'm going to do it next week. Uh, in 1522, Luther produced uh, a work, Erasmus, uh, his, his German New Testament. Erasmus, in 1524, wrote an article called Freedom of the Will to suggest an affront to Luther's interpretation of the Bible he translated. In response, Luther, a year later, wrote on the bondage of the will. And you see, in retrospect, where those two and that has all gone today. I mean, what if, what if Luther and Erasmus and Calvin and all the rest stepped back and said, hey, let's let our utter faith in Jesus shine. Let's keep our divisions out of all this. We are one body. Erasmus, I won't argue with you. Luther, I won't argue with you. I won't write this paper. I won't do this. And let love abide between us. What if these leaders of the Reformation had taken up 
their cross, humbly preaching Jesus as the author and finisher of faith, and let every believer believe and see things as they were led and insisted on love instead of division. What would have happened? Isn't the Holy Spirit capable of managing people? Sure, pastors preach the best of our abilities, but we have to admit many things are not completely known or understood, and we have to accept people where they are in love. Since this didn't happen next week, we're going to look at what happened from there. And it's just going to be bullet points. This church was started. That happened. This happened. They were put to death. This went. That happened. This happened. And it culminates in a family by the name of Smith, in my estimation. And we're going to talk. That's where it leads us to all of this stuff. Okay. So let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have three phone calls from Jim in Cleveland, Ohio, John in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mark in South Jordan, Utah. We're going to get to you in just one second. Because Christian laws are written on the hearts of believers. And believers are independently under the influence of God through the Holy Spirit. And because all beliefs are, in the end, between God and the individual, Christianity is entirely subjective, which leaves believers with the freedom to share Jesus and to love. Okay, we're back. We're going to go to Jim in Cleveland, Ohio. Jim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, my brother. Hi. How you doing? Hey, uh, first-time caller, fairly long-time listener. Um, I just wanted to compliment you, certainly, on... I just watched your videos on the uh, five-point pentagram, or acronym, you would refer to as Calvinism. I thought you did an excellent job. Uh, refuting what I think is uh, uh, not a Christian God in terms of faith, and I think you presented that with love more so than I would have ever been able to, my friend, and I, I certainly commend you with that. Thanks, Jim. Uh, um, I have a uh, question pertaining to your view on hell. Yeah. Um, and, and let me preface this. Let me give you a short view, and then maybe you could comment on it, and uh, maybe you could tell me if you agree, disagree, maybe there's something there. But let me preface it by saying that we know God is a consuming fire. We know that. Uh, we all come to the presence of God after death. We all do. All means all. Now, whether his fire, his consuming fire, burns you or not is up to you. In other words, if you believe in him, if you love him, this consuming fire is bliss. If you do not believe in him and you do not love God, this consuming fire is unbearable. And let me take it even farther. Um, there are people in this world, Sean, as you know, that hate God, hate the idea of God, various atheists, whoever they may be. 
these people, when coming to the presence of God, this feeling after they die, this, their spirit doesn't change. This feeling doesn't go away. So therefore, this consuming fire of God will be absolute torture to them for forever, for all eternity. Just wanted to know what you thought about that, if I'm way off base, uh, and uh, if you have any viewpoints on it, that'd be great. I do, Jim, and thanks. I, uh, let me just kind of give you really quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. Biblically, we know hell, it's the dark place, gives up its dead. And we know that they stand and they're judged, and if their names aren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're cast into the lake of fire. And where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and which was not created for man, but was created for Satan and his angels. I completely agree with you that uh, when you learn of who Christ is and what he's done for you, and your heart is changed and you begin to abide in love, your abiding in God's presence will be bliss. Because God is love. It's one of the is's of God that John mentions. God is a consuming fire. God is love. I, the only thing that I would differ with you on is that I believe those recalcitrant souls who reject God and hate God for whatever reason and whatever has motivated them, I believe the parts of them that weren't covered will be burned away by his fire. And, but I believe that they will, whatever's left of them, come out and he will reconcile all to himself after the purge has been done. The, 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 I'm hearing you. So you do believe in a reconciliation for, for some or all. Do you believe in reconciliation for all or yeah. for many? I believe okay. in reconciliation for all. And the reason is, Jim, is because if God before creating one thing, and this is a God who is love, and he created a world where he knew the vast majority were going to reject his son because Jesus is straight as the gate narrows the way. Few be there that find it. And he created that world knowing that he was only going to collect a few sons and daughters and the rest would literally burn in his presence for eternity. And we know the burning, the place of it is in the presence of Jesus and his holy angels, according to Revelation. So in their presence, these people are being burned by the fire of God. And I don't see how a loving God, he's just, I see the burning, I see the purging of the sin of the people, but I don't see him creating this vast world this way, knowing that the end result was going to be utter anguish and suffering forever. I must say that, that that's a beautiful uh, perspective. Uh, I hope it's yeah, true, like we talked about. Yeah, yeah I mean, it would be great, certainly. Um, and really that echoes, the view I got this from, the person I got this from, you'll never guess. But he included your definition of reconciliation, not in exact words, but pretty close. Hmm. I don't think you'd ever guess who I got this view from. No, who? An Eastern Orthodox Christian. Wow. Monastic monk. Wow. Um, last fall, I traveled to northern Greece. I'm sort of a truth seeker myself. I feel like I'm on the same page with you on so many different things. Um, and I was just curious. I wanted to meet with as many early Christians, as many American Protestant Christians, and just trying to get all these different viewpoints to kind of see where I stand, to see what I truly believe, what speaks to me in my heart, what speaks love 
more so than anything. Yeah. And, and it, it just shocked me to hear this viewpoint so close to what you described from this monk. I mean, wow. let's be serious. I mean, I, I think Praise it's God. In, in many words. And certainly another thing that this Eastern monastic monk would not let me leave without hearing is his message of agape, wow. love. And I mean, really throwing me away. Now, I'm not ready to jump ship in the Eastern Orthodox Church. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know what I mean? I'm just saying that there's 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 beautiful aspects in many different religions, uh, except for Calvinism. And, uh, <laughs> Gotta love them too, brother. <laughs> hey, brother Jim, we got three pe- we got three waiting. I really appreciate your call. It's really thoughtful. Really good to meet you, my friend. Awesome, man. Take care. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye, bye. Bye. We're going to uh, is is, is any, hey ladies, put wait put the whiskey away. Is there anybody who's a first time caller in these? You're not checking anymore. You don't care. <laughs> what what are they saying, Derek? They're beyond care. They're beyond care. All right, we're going to go to Mark in, in South Jordan, and then we're going to go to John and David. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey. Hey, Mark. Uh, so I'm new to your show. Oh, well, welcome. Yeah, thank you. So here's a slight background on me. Um, I am a return missionary from the LDS Church, and homosexual and um, I've <clears throat> well come to the realization that I don't believe the church is true and partial due to just the wacky history and <laughs> um, just things that I felt weren't right so mm-hmm. I guess my question is where do I go from there because it's been my whole life Okay, Mark, uh, first of all, thanks for calling. Second of all, uh, I'm glad that you're searching and you haven't thrown uh, all things to the wind. That happens a lot with some of us who have come out of Mormonism and we're so burned by what we've gone through and realizing it's not right, we kind of give up on, on all things God. Uh, my challenge to you would be find a place uh, my challenge to you actually, uh, Mark, would first go to God and talk to him about your relationship with him and let him know your heart toward him and say your heart to him and tell him you need his light and his love and his guidance and his understanding and that you receive his son if you still believe that. If you don't, I would challenge you to go and say, I don't believe that. Help me. Help me. I need to know your truth and put it in his hands because he does respond and he does love you like he loves me and all the rest of us. And he looks for those who are seeking him. And that would be you. you make, the fact that you're making this call says you're still seeking for something. Secondly, I would find a church. Now, I know you're in this area. Come to campus. Uh, we would love to have you. We meet at 10 o'clock on Sundays and we meet at 2.30. All we do is teach the Bible. You want to cling to uh, former or other beliefs, whatever it is, just come and learn with us. We have refreshments. <laughs> And uh, which is the draw for me and uh, and just come and join us but if not here keep searching just keep looking and keep that connection to God open how does that sound 
sounds good. It's just, yeah, it's been scary, especially with um, everyone else around me and who I've associated with being LDS and thinking I've kind of gone off the deep end. And uh, I definitely want to find truth, and because I want to find truth, I just couldn't take uh, the LDS church anymore. Yeah. There's just there's too much to ignore. There's too many things that God would never allow if he truly, if that was truly his church. And so... Come I, I come prayed. come talk to us, uh, Mark. Uh, okay. We also have a Bible study on Thursday nights at six o'clock, and you know I know often the last thing you may want is more religion. Please don't view this as religion. It's just a place for you to come and have some fellowship with like-minded people. Your homosexuality is a non-event here. Um, it's it's that's a that's between you and God. Uh, if you could look into the hearts, actually the lives of a lot of people who come here, you probably look like Paul or Peter in comparison. Uh, so come join us. We'd love to have you. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome, my brother. We're going to be praying for you. Thanks. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. That's a plight. I mean, that's a plight. That young man is in a serious spiritual crisis probably in a social and a, a, I mean, a crisis in every way. And so if you're still watching, Mark, you will be in my personal prayers. And I know people who watch and pray for others will be praying for you. God is love. He knew all things. He knows you and he wants you. And uh, he wants you as you are and just come and let him work in you, in your spiritual life. That's what, that's what the plea is. He's working in mine. We hope you'll take advantage of that. Okay, let's go to David in Fresno, first-time caller, and then we'll go to John. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, hey, David. You're on the air. Hey. How's it going? Hey, it's going well. How are you? I'm good. You got to turn that computer down. Yeah, I'm about to turn it down right now. <laughs> Am I the next caller? You are on the air. All right, right now? At the, at the, is this Sean? This is. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Good. How you doing? Hey, I just turned the volume down. I heard that um, last caller from South. Uh, I I've talked to people, you know, tortured souls like that, especially around Temple Ground. It's it's um, it's a common thing. Um, but talking to people about these things is difficult, and um, I, I I like your show, and. Um, it's easy to align yourself with, you know, the good people in scripture. Um, but it's not that easy to align yourself with the bad. And, um, uh, especially, you know, very, uh, first people said, you know, like a lot of the people that, like that Matt Wick, I, I watch the show kind of in, um, binges. Um, oh. and they kind of have a cadence, you know, and, um, I just, it's, um, I don't know, I, I just kind of wanted to bring up, there's people like, like Herod, um, you know, searching the scriptures um, to, to defend their point. Um, you know, after the, the Magi came to him, 
and um, and told them what to look for. Please keep it quiet. Please keep it quiet. And uh, and and what came of that? The uh, the atrocities that came from that, instead of just an open um, conversation um, about reasonable things. And I, well, I've been talking, and you haven't talked. Um, I guess I'll let you go from there. Okay, David. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye. All right, we're going to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Okay, Sean. Uh, like just quick, uh, I've read the scriptures all my life, and sometimes to 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, not that that makes anybody an expert or anything, but I've searched the truth for many, many years. I was LDS for many years. Still go once in a while. got good friends there. But uh, I have watched every one of your episodes all the way through. Every one of them. I've gone back and searched them all the way through. And I've seen progression in you all the way through uh, and your show. And, and the knowledge that has come to you is, is because you have sought Jesus. And the, the most important, I'm not a big scriptorian anymore because there's so many contradictions. that you, There are little contradictions in the scriptures that you can just make them say about anything you want to. But there's truths in there. But Jesus... Made a profound truth when he told the, the Jews at that time. He said, "Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and those are the ones that testify of me." Yeah. Jesus wants us to come to Him. Those scriptures, if they testify of Him, if you study those scriptures and you find the ones that testify of Him, and you go to Jesus, that's what it's all about. It's getting that relationship with Him. Amen. Not the soul of scriptor and all that. It, it, it helps to study the scriptures. But I studied the King James Bible many years, and it led me in the wrong direction because of some mistranslations. And, and I, I totally agree with you on total rec recent weeks. Uh, anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah. But uh, this hellfire thing is a big issue with me. I, I believe that what is being burnt out of us is sin. And that what's left is what when we come to God, and and that's all taken care of in that total reconciliation eventually. I agree with you, and John. Early early church fathers knew this. They're, the first and second century, there were I could quote you. I could go get the information. I, I don't have it handy, but they said that somewhere in eternity, everybody would find God in the end, and they would be coming back. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to take your sin into heaven with you. Because you can't have that there. But it does mean that it's going to be purged out of you. Yeah. But anyway, that's the most important scripture. Go to Jesus. Ask him, what would you do in this situation? I don't think he'll let you down. I think the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will testify to you what we're supposed to do in our lives. And we don't need, like you said, priests and all that doing things for us. It's okay to have a pastor and all that. I agree with you 100%, man. And I just want to let you know and let that... That boy, that LDS boy that has a homosexual problem, understands something that Jesus loves him. He does not like sin, and I'm not saying that's necessary. I'm just saying he loves him, and go back to Jesus, and don't worry about that. Amen. Just go to him and let him love you. He'll love you. John, I love you. I love, uh, your, I love your heart. I love the things you share when you call in. I really appreciate it, my brother. Okay, thank you very much, and love your show, man. I love you, too. And I'm going to come out and see you one of these days. I'm coming. We hope you do. Okay. Right. Okay, bye, John. Bye-bye. I got some quick, how much, Derek? We've got three minutes. I have some quick questions. 
Hello, Sean. Would a member of the LDS Church who feels led to wear, well, this, you're throwing me a tough one, temple garments fit into what you've described as subjective Christianity? Absolutely. Come on. There's what? There are, there are people who have all sorts of things they wear as part of their getup. I mean, can someone who has tattoos be acceptable in subjective Christianity? Well, these aren't religious. They are. To me, they are. This is very religious to me. I mean, we do things as people. The question is, what's the, in the heart of the person wearing that? Who are they seeking to follow? Where is their trust and heart placed? Who cares what they're wearing? I mean, look at people wear robes, wear yarmulkes, all these things. Is God saying you're wearing the wrong clothes here? No, 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 no. Now, do I agree with LDS garments? Hell no. No, not at all. I, I think they, they, they put people into some sort of bondage, to tell you the truth. And I think the temple ceremony and the prerequisites to get into that temple are bondage. But that's, if somebody tells me, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the author and finisher of my faith, and, and they say, I know he was resurrected, I follow him, and I'm a temple garment-wearing Mormon, I'll say, have at it, that's between you and God. I'm not going to stand as your judge. I will disagree with Mormonism, but you want to do that? Go ahead. Because we have snake handlers who are holding up rattlesnakes to see if they'll bite them. We have all sorts of schnit. Schnit, that is not a swear word, out there that people buy into and they do as humans. What's the heart for God? Second question. Is Satan your brother? I've often wondered. Uh, <laughs> my mother has often wondered too. Uh, <laughs> My brother's not that bad of a guy. <laughs> uh, Satan is not my brother. Uh, only in, no, okay, I'll stop. And, uh, all right, and then what else do we have? Oh, uh, this says, will catastrophe strike the earth in September? I had a call from a, a good brother the other day, and he is saying, all the radio, Christian radio, all Christian TV, Everything. People are saying the end is here. The end is here. This is the end. Uh, and uh, and this, this article talks about how there's actually a date where people say this is the date in, in September. And so I just want to end the show tonight and say, I, well, it's not really, it doesn't really matter, does it? There is no way. It's not going to happen according to these predictions based on the Bible and based on the interpretation of Jewish law and based on all this hocus pocus that these people have thrown into it. This is just one more example of everybody getting all frothy over something that is untenable in Scripture. And it keeps people on alert. It keeps people flowing into church and sitting in the pews. It keeps the pastors preaching to get ready. People start paying more because they want God to be happy with how they've lived. It's a big scheme. Bottom, I don't know what to say to you, except if the end comes in September, I'll do something drastic. <laughs> what, what can I say? But I'll bet you anything, we will be doing a show in the first week of October and the end will not have happened. Mark my words. I promise you that. <laughs> I can't promise you. <laughs> I'm just as bad as them. But 
I really would be surprised. Now, if I'm wrong, well, so what? Jesus is my Lord. I'm going with him. But uh, <laughs> if I'm right, you guys are just wasting time. Get out there and share him and stop looking for him in the clouds. He's already come. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys.